0: Nicolai um, Madolvinu was a Romanian hymn writer. His hymns are melodic, beautiful, uh, even mournful. And uh, he also suffered greatly, uh, suffered persecution. He was imprisoned uh, under the communist government. And at one point in his life, the communist government came in. They ransacked his house. And they took everything. At that point in his life, after they ransacked his house and took everything, he was sitting there with nothing but a pen and some paper on his floor. And there he began to write a hymn. For all that you have given me, I praise you with thanksgiving. For all that you have taken away from me, I praise you with thanksgiving. It's striking, isn't it? There's just something like compelling about somebody who has a resolute joy, an unshakable joy and confidence in God in the bleakest of circumstances. I think that's what people find so compelling about the end of the book of Habakkuk. When we turn to the end of the book of Habakkuk, we find a man who is staring at ruin straight in the face. And yet, he is praising God. He is rejoicing in God. And so as we as we look at this, maybe we can get something, catch something of Habakkuk's disposition and his praise as well. Let me pray for us. God, may we receive the gift of joy this evening, which is the gift of yourself a joy which no one can take away. We ask this on the basis of Jesus' promise. Amen. Well, there's a story told about young John Lennon. He goes to school and he's five years old. At five years old in his school, I guess they ask the same thing that they asked in my school when I was five, and that is, what do you want to be when you grow up? And as the story goes, John Lennon said, I want to be happy. They said he didn't understand the assignment. He said they didn't understand life. In her book, *The Pursuit of* or *The Happiness Project*, rather, Gretchen Rubin she uh, she notes the stat about how when people were asked all over the world, what do you want most for you and for your children? Uh, The number one answer around the world is, I just want them. I just want myself to be happy. And we know this, right? Even if we wouldn't say it or articulate it like that, most of us live as if the point of life is happiness, Blaise Pascal said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they do employ, all tend to this end. And we've instantiated this in our Declaration of Independence, that, that one of the things that the government is sworn to protect is our ability to pursue happiness. I mean, we are obsessed with happiness. And yet happiness is in short supply, isn't it? If you look around, I mean, just check the stats that the CDC notes how antidepressants are up and they've tracked that. Uh, The life expectancy age is going down and that's because of suicides, not technological innovation or lack thereof. We all want happiness, but happiness seems to be very elusive. In fact, those who seem to find it can't really keep it. Why is it so difficult to find and to keep happiness? I was um, asked to speak a couple years ago at uh, the Anna Kappa School. They were doing a whole unit symposium, their whole school was doing a symposium on uh, happiness. And uh, they asked me to come speak from a Christian perspective on happiness. Uh, I'll tell you what I said later, but I don't know that it impressed them. Anyway, so they are doing this opposing on happiness. And I just asked at the very beginning, well, what is happiness? And one of the students raised their hand and said, happiness is achieving your goals. I thought that was a very precocious student because I had just listened to a, a lecture by a Harvard psychologist Dan Gilbert and he defined happiness as getting what you want. But if happiness is achieving your goals. If happiness is getting what you want, then you can understand why it's so elusive. Because that's not really in our control, at least most of it is it. That's why the, you know, the the word happy the derivative, where it comes from, its etymological link goes back to our circumstances, hap, happen. So it's probably why we have such a hard time with it, which is also what makes this last piece of the book of Habakkuk so utterly astounding. Because what Habakkuk suggests What the book of Habakkuk suggests is that it is possible to be filled with joy even in the midst of disappointing, difficult, even devastating circumstances. Look down at your Bibles. Look at verses 17 and 18. Habakkuk writes, Though the fig tree should not blossom or fruit be on the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Happiness, our Habakkuk, begins by talking about, about these things. The absence of these good things in life. He speaks of figs and grapes of, and olives. You know, figs and grapes and olives, they're not necessities. They're, you don't need them to survive, but they sure do make life a whole lot nicer in the ancient world. It, 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 he's talking about, he's talking about the, the, the comforts, the pleasures, the things that you don't really need to survive, but the things that, well, they're just real nice. Today, we might say, when the last latte has been drunk, when when McConnell's is closed, when, when there's no chocolate in the pantry. Uh, today, we might say, when there are no waves in the ocean, yet I will rejoice. He's talking about the, the comforts, the conveniences of life. But you know, it, I'll be honest. I don't know about you, but my mood it can be so disrupted by the smallest of things. So for my honeymoon, uh, Pam and I's honeymoon, it wasn't just mine. I didn't go by myself. That would be bad. Uh, for our honeymoon, um Yeah. Lots of marriage counseling. No, for our honeymoon, we went to Martha's Vineyard, and we we went there, and we were, like, really broke. I don't know why we chose to go there. That's like going to Santa Barbara when you're broke. Just don't do it. So we went to Martha's Vineyard. We were really broke, but we stayed in this bed and breakfast, and they had free breakfast. And so we ate breakfast. The first morning, I got waffles, and they were, they were pretty good. I, I'm not the biggest waffle eater. I like a little protein with my breakfast, but, hey, waffles— first day honeymoon let's have dessert for breakfast why not those of you who are pancake and waffle eaters it's just dessert I don't know what you're doing but okay so you eat pancakes you eat waffles we have my waffles I put my whipped cream I got my strawberries it's pretty good the first day second day it was okay by the 10th day because all they had was waffles I was so sick of waffles on the day that we were leaving, I think I, I must have looked at Pam with this expression that said, you're going to have to force feed me this thing, right? Because I, I didn't have variety in my breakfast. And we can be so, our joy can be so contingent on the comforts and conveniences that we experience in life, I and mean, the smallest thing, can the smallest thing steal your joy? Like it can steal mine. But when luxuries, when, cre- uh, when creature comforts are taken away, how do you respond then? Or do minor inconveniences, like mosquitoes and masks, suck the joy out of life and life's experiences. Habakkuk says that, 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 he, that he will rejoice when all these good things are taken away. Imagine a life where the absence of comforts and convenience and variety did not mean the absence of joy. Don't you want that life? But Habakkuk goes further. He's not just talking about figs and grapes and olives and the good things in life. He goes on from talking about the luxuries of life to talking about the absence of life's necessities. Verse 17, when there's no food in the field, no herd in the stalls. Now, this is an agrarian economy. Food in the field, that's, that's grain, that's the things that produce bread. This is your staples, this, is, this isn't the good stuff. We're talking about ramen and Cheerios, right? So when there's no ramen in the pantry, when there are no Cheerios to be had, yet I will rejoice. When there's no rice and there's no beans... And not just the staples of of diet and the necessities that you need there. He also is talking about financial staples as well. Notice he talks about cattle in the stall. Guess what? Back in the ancient world, no Bank of America. There's uh, There's no BOA. You didn't have a credit card. You could go up, you know. No, your money was in your cattle, your herd. What he's saying is when, when your 401k is depleted, when the last unemployment check has been spent and rent is due, when there's no gas in the car, when, when there are no jobs available in the economy, yet I will rejoice. And that, that's astounding, that's flabbergasting that he could say that. I mean, could you imagine a life where doesn't matter what circumstance you face, it could not steal your joy? When you could say when the engagement breaks, when the cancer returns, when you fail at work, when you fail at your whole career, when the pain persists, when you bury your second child, Yet I will rejoice in God. How is Habakkuk able to have joy in these circumstances? Well, I want you to notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't deny the pain of this world, he doesn't deny the difficulty of his circumstances. I mean, Habakkuk is not being Pollyanna. Right? I mean, I know what you think. You're thinking, yes, Kyle, I wish I could have that. But you know, some people are just prone to that. Some people are just sanguine personalities. And I'm just not that way. Do you think of acting that way? Go back and read chapter one. He is not. He fought for this. He wrestled for this. How was he able to do it? Well, he, he's not denying The pain and the suffering and the difficulty of this world. He's not being Pollyanna. Look at verse 18 and look at the first word in it. He says, yet, yet. Do you know what that yet means? That yet means that this is not Eastern mysticism, nor is it Christian stoicism. No, he is taking a full-throated look at the pain and suffering and difficulty of the world. He is saying that, yes, all these things can and indeed probably will come upon us. Yet I will rejoice. Habakkuk's joy is not a joy that that ignores the pain and suffering and circumstances of this world. This is a joy that lives alongside of the pain and suffering and circumstances of this world. How is he able to rejoice? How is he able to do that? Well, it must be that he's found a joy that is not tied to his circumstances. Remember, remember how we defined happiness. Happiness is getting what you want. Happiness is having your desires fulfilled. What does Habakkuk want at the end of this book? Where is he placing his joy? Yet I will rejoice, verse 18, in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. What Habakkuk is doing is he's saying, I have found God to be the sole source and supply of my joy. And I am resting in him. One Commentator puts it this way. He says, Even if the devastation is total, even if there's no retribution or restoration, Yahweh, my God, my Lord, my strength, my salvation, has become the sole and sufficient object of Habakkuk's ecstatic hope and joy. He is rejoicing in God, in the God of his salvation. You know what salvation means in the Bible? It's a very expansive term salvation means rescue from danger. Salvation means healing from illness. Salvation means deliverance from the threat of death. Salvation means freedom from anxiety, harmony in relationships, perfect satisfaction, wholeness, delight. It is everything sad coming untrue and everything happy coming true. And that's what Habakkuk says he has in God. And you know what? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the same thing. That's what first Peter tells us. When he tells us that our inheritance is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for us. Do you know what that is? That is a joy that is anchored in something that cannot be touched by the vicissitudes of life. That's what we have. In God, who is our salvation. In God, who is the source of all joy. Think about that. Think about the things that you love in this world. I mean... Think about those meals that you have just enjoyed, because the food was right, and the atmosphere was perfect, and the company and the conversation were deep and meaningful, and you were connecting, and you never wanted the night to end, but it ended, didn't it? Or... or, or maybe you're like me, today I went to the beach with my family and we, uh, we played in the waves and I pushed my daughter in the waves in her boogie board and she loved it and she's just learning to love the waves. And then I loved it more, seeing her. And so then I would like bodyboard in and make a, our body body surf in and then make a fool of myself, like giddy laughter. And Neve was like, dad, you laugh weird. I was having so much joy. But then I was like, I gotta go and preach. So I had to come and clean up. And you know, when we said we had to go and he, puts her head down she's sad because the experience ends every experience of joy that we have in this life it it, it ends or it leaves us wanting more or, or we eat the brilliant meal but then we, we eat too much and it bites back every experience in this life is like that because every experience in this life is pointing to a joy that is beyond all these experiences of joy it's pointing us to the source of joy Himself. God. That's who Habakkuk knows he has. And because he has God, he has joy. Now I know what you are saying. Okay, that sounds easy, but why don't we have it? But it isn't easy, note. It isn't easy. I want you to notice the language Habakkuk says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will. I will take joy in God. I will rejoice in him. I will take joy in him. Habakkuk is making a commitment to rejoice because he knows that as he's rejoicing now, writing this hymn, he knows that there will be days when that joy needs to be fought for again. And he has wrestled for that joy over the whole of this book. And he's got it now. And when it fades, he's going to wrestle for it again. He's saying, I will do it. I will do it. I will set my joy in God because because I have a reason to, because God is the strength and the source of joy, because he makes my feet like like a hind's feet on high places. That means that in whatever treacherous circumstance you find yourself in, you are stable, and you have sure footing. But it's something that has to be fought for. Oh, how do you do it? Well, one way is like I said, you have to meditate on God as the source of all joy, and how all your joys and all the enjoyment of this world is really pointing to him. But I think there's actually a more direct way from the text. Do you know what it is? Look at the last verse to the choir master with stringed instruments. Do you know how you do it? You sing it. That's why we're given this hymn, to sing over and over and over and over again because the music of the truth of God as the strength and source of all joy and the source of our salvation. That is what we need to get into our hearts and to get it into our hearts, we need to sing it again and again and again. And so it's good that you're here because you don't just need to sing it. You need to sing it in the congregation of God's people. That's why he doesn't say to my mom or to my brother. He says to the choir master. Because this is going to happen in corporate worship. So keep coming. Keep coming and keep singing. John Piper is a pastor in uh, Minneapolis, and he tells this really dramatic story about. I hope this never happens in my ministry. He's starting the service, and he's introducing it, and then on the second row, um, this stalwart staple member of the congregation has a heart attack and dies there, right on the spot. It's next to his wife. I think what do we? You know, they stop the service. Folks have to come in, they take out the body. And he's like, What should I do? What, I mean, I guess, you know, I was like, No, I, I didn't prepare anything else. It's just this, this is this text that I've prepared, and God knew this was going to happen, so I guess I should preach this text. And, you know, so, so you know, they, they addressed they spent some and then they went on with the service. He didn't know what to do. He's like, I mean, People need the word. And so he, he gets up to start preaching. And he looks in the back of the sanctuary. And he know what he sees. The widow of the man who just dropped dead. She followed his body out. And then she came back and she worshiped. And he came up to her after the service, John Piper he said like, you came back. Why did you come back? Because she needed to hear the words of eternal life. Because she needed to sing the words of eternal life and the joy of the gospel. Like we do. And so keep singing it. And saying it. And worshiping the God of our salvation. Amen.